G'day, you're listening to the Big Breakdown Podcast with Chris Stafford and Harrison Marshall. Take it away, fellas. Hello and welcome along to Season 2 of the Big Breakdown Podcast, where in this season we are analysing the serial winning attributes of coaching and what we can take into the community game. Uh, today we are focusing on people, and as always I'm joined by my co-host Harrison. Harrison, how are you? I'm good, thank you, Chris. I'm good. I'm, um, I'm very excited to get into this um, into this conversation with with, uh, with with the guests that we've got on today. Um, yeah, I think we're planning the season. We, you know, we've, we've started looking at this, um, this guy's work, and it's yeah, it's really kind of reached out, reached out to us, especially around this around this vision of people. So, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited. Yourself? Yeah, same, same. It's our 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 second international guest. The first one's got me out of bed at five o'clock in the morning for the recording down in New Zealand, but I'm looking forward to it. So. <laughs> Should we, should we get started? Um, today's guest is Richard Smith from Light, Lightsmith Performance Consultancy and co-author of Sports Coaching and Learning. Richard started his journey working in education uh, and coach rugby union at various levels, including Canterbury Under-19 Colts, Canterbury B, and in 2007 winning the IRB Under-19 World Cup with New Zealand Under-19s in Belfast. He transitioned into a role with High Performance Sport New Zealand as a high performance coaching consultant, working alongside athletics, cricket, cycling, triathlon, Paralympics and Winter Olympic programmes. Moving to the Crusaders Rugby Union, Richard was responsible for people and performance. He also played a contract in the growth of their support team and the development of their new high performance training facility and the establishment of the first Super Rugby Academy in New Zealand. Richard worked as high performance coach, development manager for New Zealand cricket for five years, where he developed the high performance coaching strategy, success profile, succession planning, and development of their high performance development program. Richard is passionate about working with people and helping them grow professionally and personally. Over the last six years, he has been developing this through Lightsmith Performance Consultancy, working with New Zealand Rugby, England Rugby, Bupa Healthcare, and the New Zealand Spinal Trust, to name a few. Today, he joins us to chat about people and people development and coaching. Richard, thanks for joining us. How are you? Chris Harrison, absolute pleasure, mate. And uh, you really enjoyed uh, just our pre, pre-recording pre uh, conversations. So, yeah, I can see a couple of good blokes in front of me. Oh, I appreciate that. I first um, I listened to the Talking Performance podcast with Jay Carter and I heard you on that and thought, I said to Harrison, I think we need to get Richard on because everything <laughs> you were speaking about, I just sort of aligned to and thought this is great I think we need to sort of push this a little bit more obviously for for this episode specifically we're looking at people and how that links in sort of an attributes of a serial winning coach and I think that's something that that amateur coaches or grassroots coaches can take on board just from your experiences and people that you've worked with what what are some of the key characteristics that sort of coaches need to to develop people well well, Chris I'm going to jump straight to their great beard from your country Shakespeare who in a line from uh Geez, I can't even remember. It might be Hamlet, but, you know, it was to thine own self be true is the, the first thing. And then there's a guy called Otto Sharma, who's professor of um, leadership and management at uh, MIT in the States. And he developed the the U theory of leadership. And Sharma talks about the interior condition of the of the intervener. And, and for me, um, as I've evolved and here I understand things over the years, if you're working with people, the first person that you got to start with is yourself. And, you know, it's, it, it, and, you know, people say, well, what's that about? And I think there's a couple of things here. It's awareness. It's awareness of self and then awareness of others. And, you know, if you look at Goldman's work around, um, uh, uh, you know, emotional intelligence, you'll see where I'm coming from. Uh, and I'm a magpie, mate. I, I, there'll be nothing original here tonight. I'm not going to say anything profound. I've, I've flogged everything. <laughs> But that's the thing. I, I think what we've got to do, if we're working with people at any level, we've got to take, there's so many good people out there, far, far, the wisdom lies in the world, you know? Um, what we've got to do is condense, synthesize, filter, remove the barriers, and then work out how does it fit with, with you know, so how do we help coaches at any level develop that self-awareness? And that doesn't matter if it's a young coach or a coach just coaching kids, them becoming aware of the impact they can have on others through the way they act and behave, talk, present themselves. 
Yeah. So, you know, over the years, I've, I guess I've, I've worked really hard. This would be the same kind of dialogue I would be having with a coach. What did you notice about your coaching? What did you notice about the person and how they responded to you or the people? What did you notice about the interactions that were coming back to you? Yeah, that's, that's you know, for me, I can't condense it into any more than that, really. It's, it's, it's one of those fluid things. In the old days, I'd be you know, if you asked me twenty, if you asked me this question twenty years ago, I'd probably be pretty prescriptive, but I'm not anymore. You remember Danny Glover and um, what's that movie is in with uh, Die Hard? Is it? No, not Die Hard. Um, with um, Mel Gibson. Uh, what oh, was the movie? Weapon. Lethal Weapon. He goes, "I'm too old for this shit." <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of. Hey, there's there's just so much good stuff out there. Let's not. Uh, a mate of mine said to me one day, he said, uh, "RJ, they call me is my nickname." They said, "Hey, because I love a model, you know, I love Dreyfus model. I love, I love um, levels of perspective. I love a model." And he said to me one day, he's a sports psychologist. He said, "RJ, don't fall in love with your model." <laughs> <laughs> Which is fine if you're Rod Stewart because you can fall in love with your model and you usually marry them, but, you know. <laughs> I think you mean, I think no good if you're a coach. <laughs> well, no, I think it's right. I think sometimes, especially with, with models, we we try to apply them to every situation when actually, you know, one of the key things we learned here on the Masters was that what works for who in what circumstance and why. So, you know, even with that, reflection is really important, but how I reflect would be completely different to how Harrison might reflect in, in terms of what's best for our learning as well. And I think that's, especially when, with coaching within team sports, just rugby, that, that usually gets lost because of the amount of people that are in front of you. Got yeah, yeah. Bodies and training, it's difficult to then manage that expectation. Yeah, and that's the beauty, you know, and that, Chris, you did right. That's how I think our models should be used. They try, they're there to help us make sense of, of, of complexity and, and uh, ambiguity. You know, if I, I'm not sure if you're familiar, some of the competency frameworks that have come out of uh, DDI or Lominger, uh, they're, they're sort of big, you know, uh, corporate um, organisations in the States that have developed um, frameworks around appointing CEOs and stuff like that. And, and they actually do a good job. And, and, you know, one of the terms they use is cope or dealing with ambiguity. So, you know, if you're, a, if you're looking to appoint someone to a head coach role, you might ask, how can you handle the two extremes? Because as you and I know, or the three of us know, it is not black and white. There is an, this huge area of grey. And we're trying to deal, and, and again, we're dealing with people, you know, we've obviously had some tragedy here in uh, New Zealand in the last week or so, which has, you know, been touched pretty close to, to our house. Um, and we're dealing ultimately with people. Um, you know, one of our Olympic um, Olympians took her life last week, and you know, it's just all of a sudden there's this focus back on people. Uh, and so, how do you deal with it as a coach? Because we're under this pressure to win. And yet, if we have people who are, so I go right back to self awareness. If I know myself and I'm in good shape as a coach, and I'm aware that my athletes have particular tendencies and I know how they behave and I'm aware of that and I can assist them and I get them in a position where they're in a good space, I'm probably going to get good performance. Now, it's interesting you talk rugby because I'm still pretty close to the Crusaders. In fact, I had dinner with the guy who took my role at the Crusaders last night, Angus Gardner, who was a, you know, played a bit of footy for Bath, played for England, eh? <laughs> um, and we were just talking about this and, and, you know, rugby gets a bit of bad press, but this stuff rugby does probably as well as any other sport at the moment in New Zealand. The the real care, the awareness of what the players are about. Um, yeah, so that to me, um, you know, using using models or using um, different ways to explain ambiguity and try and make sense of it is important because it is not black and white. It's not a binary system. I'm not sure if that makes sense or I'm rambling. So you guys need to come in and get me back on get me back on piece. Or if this is the way you want your podcast to go, we're sweet. You know, I think I I think I totally agree. And you know, the way that I've seen it before and the way that I, I kind of envision it is that yeah, it's that grey in the middle and it's almost we're navigating through a fog, you know. Oh, Harrison, beautiful. We're navigating through a fog. Yeah. Another yeah. metaphor, me. Another metaphor. Um, you know, and <laughs> 
And sometimes it's about us as coaches being honest. And sometimes, you know, we don't have the answers, but we, we might know someone who knows the answers and, and we can refer or we can refer back to those models or those or those academic pieces. Um, how important do you think that kind of honesty with self and honesty with others is 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 key to these is key to, for these to be successful? Yeah, look, that, those are the words around authenticity and, you, you know, being genuine. Um and I like your reference to the academic world too, because again, I think I will never go out there and wave a crystal in front of someone and say you're instantly going to be, you know, because that's dangerous. I think our academic scientific approach must inform us. But, you know, you know the final line in every academic study, isn't it? Um, these are our findings, but more study needs to be done. <laughs> you know, for Christ's sake, put your balls on the line and <laughs> say, so, but that's up to the coaches. The coaches then go, shit, I can have a go at that. I wonder. You know, you think about you're aware of the work of Rich Masters, I imagine, in, in implicit learning. You know, yeah. well, Rich is a good mate. We were undergrads together. We played rugby together at Otago University. So Rich is a good mate of mine. And, you know, we, we sit down over a red wine and we talk about, shit, how can we actually do this at a real level? And that's, that's kind of what we've got to – that's the authenticity, Harrison, uh, of taking that academic stuff, coaches being brave enough to say, hey, I'm having a crack. Now, a key there, I reckon, and something we're just doing a little bit different now, we've just started in New Zealand, is we're engaging with the athletes at the start of the process, not the end. So, you know, typically you'll have a campaign or a season, and when do the athletes get asked for their view? In the review. So what we're doing is I'm sitting down, I'm running a wee pilot here in Christchurch and we're sitting down with the coach and their athletes and we're saying to the athlete, okay, what is it you aspire to? What are the major milestones or transitions or uh, movements you think you need to make? Now, when you're talking to a 15-year-old cyclist, they're not quite sure, so that's okay. But then you bury into it a bit further and you say, okay, what do you think your coach does well or might need to help you with and what do you think they need to get better at? Mate, it's amazing. I, I mean, I've just been, that's what I've been spending the last two or three months doing. And the, the the stuff that these young athletes are saying, I want my coach to build a relationship with me. I want them to care. I want them to be able to um, understand other aspects of my life and also give me some direction in other aspects of my life. I'm okay with them pushing me. We just need to understand if they care for me, I know they can push me. Um Oh, yeah, I want them to be good at their sport, uh, coach. I want them to have been knowledgeable about the sport and good at coaching. But I also I, I also need to know that this other stuff is in place. And we're doing this with the athlete and the coach before the coach starts down their development process. And, you know, so what we're doing, Harrison, is we're, we're engaging them early and we're getting, um, we're getting some real insight into um, what might make a difference. Yeah. There's a good example of that. Um, I was reading about Sean Dyche at Burnley, at Burnley Football Club in the Premier League. Yes. Um, and when he came and took over from Eddie Howe when Burnley weren't doing so well, that was the first thing. Was the first thing he did was, you know, he gave them he gave them all all blank pieces of paper and asked them to write down where they want where they want to be on a personal level, where they want to get to um, um, as a club, and what they're, what they're after from him and his coaching staff. And he does that. He does that every year now. And that's why he that's what he says is has led to his longevity at Burnley. Um, and that's kind of like heavily influenced, I think, myself and Chris. Um, and we've got wow. a couple of when we when we did that going into old Ottlianzians when when I when I was a, a, the assistant to Chris at the time. Uh, yeah, it, 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 that's really powerful stuff, and it's good to it's starting to filter down. I think. Yeah, because it mirrors yeah. mirrors up with sort of what I've I've been reading um, Owen Eastwood's book, Belonging. Yes, Owen. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've, I finished it a few weeks ago. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm on I'm, I'm on I'm on the final straight with it now. When they touches about um, what Vern Cotter did when he took over at Scotland, how he wanted to bring in this this whole leadership group, but because he realised when he first came in that the players needed lifting, he needed to be a bit more directive with them in terms of what they needed to be but his three-year plan was by the time it came to year three the Thistle group would then with the players come up with a vision of how they wanted to play the direction they wanted to get and set the goals of what they wanted for the season and that season um, they end up finishing uh, won all the home games which was the objective beat England I think away and then lost to France last play of the game and they were there objective was to try and win all them fixtures um, and they finished the highest in the table and went from 10th to 5th in the standings and that was through the engagement of bringing the players along for the journey. 
I suppose sort of my, if I was now an, a grassroots coach listening to this and we've given some great examples is how do you then engage with the different types of player that you would find at that community-based club? Because obviously you've worked at, with Canterbury Base, so you've got that mixture of different player levels, the different motivations for them. So how do you tailor it for each one of their wants and needs? You know, that's a great question, Chris. You mentioned Vern, just the small community that New Zealand is. So my wife went to school with Vern, knows him. I mean, I know Vern well as well when he was here. But that's that's the nature of New Zealand, mate. We're just, you know, she grew up in Tapuki where Vern grew up as oh, well. Right, well. Yeah. well we'll come but, um, to you to maybe try and get him to come on then. <laughs> oh, you know, Vern, he's a man of few words. <laughs> but the powerful words, usually. Um the grassroots, but, you know, again, I reckon if you've got a coach, he's kind of got his own shit sorted and go, shit, I'm, I'm excited. I'm going to coach this bunch of young people. Um, I just, in any level, I just try and find out, you know, what, again, it's the awareness. Once you've got your shit sorted out, what's the awareness of them? Hey, what are you doing for a job or how are your studies going? Or, you know, it might be 15 year olds. Oh, tell me about your school. What are your, what are your, some of the other interests? What other sports do you play? Now, they don't have to be done in a formal way. I'd challenge every coach that if you couldn't, in the space of 10 minutes, have a 60 second conversation with 10 people and just wander around the changing rooms, pat on the back, hey, how did school go today? What did you study? How did, um, oh, now you you love riding your BMX bike. Tell me, how's that going? You know, it's it takes effort. You know, it takes cognitive effort. It takes social effort. It takes emotional effort. But if we sign the social contract that I'm going to be a coach and I'm got a group of parents or a, a group of people have entrusted their kids with me, well then I've taken on board that responsibility. And then I, and plus it's bloody fascinating. You just don't know. And that goes back. Harrison to you know what you're saying before I use an analogy here in New Zealand I, I talk to coaches and I have a couple of slides and one I've got some mushrooms and the other one I've got a silver fern glistening in the sun and I say hey do we treat our athletes like mushrooms keep them in the dark and feed them bullshit or do we treat them like silver ferns where we water them and allow the sunlight to get on them how do you coach and you know, for too long, I was. Hey, I grew up in the. I was. I grew up in the sixties, seventies, eighties. I was coached by some interesting people in rugby, a prominent rugby, where you get this, and you had no idea what practice was going to look like. You were kept in the dark and fed bullshit. You read about whether you got picked or dropped in the newspaper. You never got a phone call. I mean, it was yeah, it was pretty, <laughs> and some of that still exists. So, you know, that's my analogy, I guess. Grassroots, no different. Find out. Treat these young people like silver ferns or – and I know you have ferns in England. I know that. <laughs> you know, shed some light on them and feed them, nurture them, give them water, show interest. Yeah. I think that's that's the most, I think that's the most powerful tool. And not only in these 60-second conversations you, you get to know your players, you hear some quite fascinating stories sometimes. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. You know, and it's – yeah, and you know, I think, you know, from like for me as a coach, I'm, I'm working with 16 to 18 year olds. You know, and the way that why I work in the the college is that they they have college lessons and then they come and do their rugby program with us. Yes. Um, so just seeing that dynamic with, with with the players and actually engaging them and you know and keeping them on track with academics is, is part of my role as well. And actually, uh, the way that my kind of vision has changed on it is that you know I'm I'm, I'm coaching people I'm coaching these kids that just so happen to be rugby players at the same time they're aspiring to aspiring yep. to be what's yep. academy players at the end of the day um, yeah so how do you put so for like so for you then how do you how do you find that balance between you know making it a, like a that, that strong social element but also that competitive edge and that drive to to get them on board with the rugby side of uh, the competitive nature of rugby as well <laughs> Sports, it's a big sorry. it's a big question and, and it's something we're debating seriously here at the moment um this group of coaches I'm working with the other night we met and one of the coaches on it is a double Olympian, double medal. His name's Hayden Ralston. He came second to Bradley Wiggins at two Olympics on the track. Now he's a coach. So Rowley was sitting down the other night. He said, I'm not sure where this line is because, you know, as a performance coach, I, I know I need to push sometimes, but I don't know what the line is. And that's part of that balance between 
they're people first. They're doing the academic. Some of them aspire to high performance. Some of them only aspire to just be a social player or a social athlete, you know, which we need to acknowledge because we know sport's a strong socialising agent. And it's important for our community. What did, what did um, Lennon say? Sport is the opiate of the masses or something <laughs> along those lines. But, you know, it's important to us, isn't it? We wouldn't be doing this if, if, if it wasn't. It's, it, it, it means a lot because it gives us a break. It gives us something else to focus. So roundabout way, Harrison, I think uh, you guys will be aware of the work of um, Ryan and DC around self-determination theory, um, purpose, mastery, autonomy and responsibility. It doesn't matter what it is. You can have that conversation. Hey, what is it? What is it you're about? What's your purpose? I want to be a really good student. I want to enjoy my rugby or my sport. And in the end, I, I, I want to be able to contribute and give back. Okay. Okay. Within that, what is it you want to be really, really good at? Um, and, it, you know, I'm not going to answer that because everyone will come with it. Okay. And if you were to go ahead and do that, what level of self-responsibility and autonomy do you need and how much do you need to help me? So I'm doing a lot of work just around using that little framework with coaches to say, well, there's your conversation. Um, and, and within that conversation, Harrison, you can maybe ascertain the balance. Uh, and and I, I'm always a bit worried about this word balance. Uh, Gilbert and Oka's, <laughs> you know, I'm sorry if I sound like I'm name dropping, but it's just New Zealand. So my wife played volleyball for New Zealand and Gilbert, was a New Zealand volleyball player, and they played together for the same club here in Christchurch. So, so Gilbert's a mate of mine. He came to our wedding. Gilbert's son plays for our local rugby club. So Gilbert and I stand on the sideline on a Saturday afternoon, watch his son play, and you know, so we have these chats <laughs> and we talk shit. But he, he, Gilbert used the analogy of the three-legged stool. You know, whether it's um, social, emotional, physical, whether it's uh, academic, family, and um, sport whatever the three legs might be. And actually, Harrison, at some point in time, the legs do get out of the length changes and people do slide one way or the other. I guess that's called life, isn't it? You know, it's, yeah. life is not. <laughs> and within that self-determination concept, also acknowledging, hey, you'll have different focuses and things won't quite go so well at one point and how do we manage the imbalance rather than say we're going to have a perfectly balanced life? Um, and, and that's, again, front-loading stuff. And if I switch to high performance, I think we sell a myth. People get into high-performance environments. I want to go to the Olympics. I want to win an Olympic medal. And we make it sound like this wonderful bloody utopia, you know, and actually it's about the most brutal, psychologically damaging environments you can be in. But we don't, we don't, we don't send that narrative at the start, and I think that's where we get into danger because we don't set it out. The Dutch are doing it really well. The Dutch have some. I work with a guy called John Hallamans. He's a doctor. He's a Kiwi now, but he was a. He came out to New Zealand and um, he became a triathlon. He was he was like he's internationally revered as a top triathlon coach. So good that the Dutch brought him back into a system for four years, and he talked about the. Um, basically the onboarding they do at the start of a program with a new group of athletes, parents, they do some testing around the, all the people. They talk to them about what it's going to look like. And they also talk to them about what the end looks like, if they've been successful or they haven't, and the care that will be available for them. And John, typically he's turned into a Kiwi more than a Dutchman. He says, I thought they needed to toughen up. He said to me, <laughs> and, uh, and train more because that's sort of sort of the Kiwi attitude, you know. We'll train a bit harder. <laughs> but he actually saw. He said, well, and you know, Holland did pretty well. The Netherlands did pretty well, and they've actually got a really holistic program. So, you know, right back to your original question, I think again, knowing the individual, acknowledging there will be imbalances, understanding what they want to be good at where they want to get to and how, how much freedom and autonomy they want and how much assistance they want. If I, if we can establish that, then shit, we've got a pretty healthy environment. I think that, that sort of links down that a coach asked me this question the other day is we, from a rugby perspective, we're always wanting to encourage him to play through games and give players this freedom. But then they're like, surely you've got to find that. And again, he used the word balance of that between boundaries and autonomy. So, you know, where do we draw that? line of well actually no this is the expectation that we have along with the autonomy of 
making them decisions. And I was like, well, that's like the million dollar question, really. That's that's the that's the relationship that you've got with your players to be able to to set that as a standard. So, do you have outlined beforehand the level of behaviours that you're going to align to for the whole season that they're aware of? And if you drop below them behaviours, and that's probably when you need to be more of an authoritarian and then direct that back or get the players to do it themselves, especially within a team environment, get them to drive the standards from within. Um, Cause there's no, there's no golden bullet, I suppose. Is there? It's, it's, it's just trying to do you, it goes back to in the, in the season one of the podcast, we spoke about the importance of understanding your who, understanding your participants and the impact that that can have on the, the whole environment that you create. Yeah. I think, I think you're spot on. That advice you gave, Chris, is just absolutely spot on. You guys would be aware of, um, and, and look, again, you know, I've said I love a model and I've thrown a couple out, but, you know, the Dreyfus, you know, the Dreyfus model of skill acquisition, where they go through novice through to, you know, expert. And even in that, there's a debate, you know, um, you know, Nicholas Nassim Talib, you know, and the Black Swan argues there is no such thing as experts. Um so, you know, that whole notion of people say, I'm an expert, and I always go, yeah, yeah, you know, what, what you know, people, are, uh, what's the, the thing? I've got a BS, an MS, and a PhD. I'm an expert. I've got bullshit, more shit, piled high and deep. <laughs> <laughs> so, so um, yeah, sorry to, uh, I mean, look, look I've, you know, I'm an academic. I've had, I would have stayed at university forever if I could have, but um, Targo was going to kill me, I think, if I stayed there any longer. Chris has. Chris has. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not leaving just yet. <laughs> Good on you, Chris. Bloody oath, mate. Live the life. Um, uh, so, you, 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 but, you know, that's that, uh, going back to Dreyfus, saying, well, I will – coach quite directively here with some authority because you're new and you're novice and you need rule governed behavior and as we move down I'll start to provide greater degrees of freedom because you'll have more responsibility and you'll have more autonomy but again it goes right back to that treat them like silver ferns talk to them about this is the way I coach here's how I will approach this stuff you'll find I'll be quite directive I watched Wayne Smith one day um uh, it, was, uh, it was when I was working for Academy High Performance Sport in New Zealand. I was observing Smithy coaching the All Blacks, the back line. And I seriously, within the space of five minutes, he would have gone from directing novices because they were trying something for the first time through to really high-level questioning and getting the players' engagement and getting the players' input. And to see that operation and, you know, that skill and being able to move up and down and it, and I still think um, age group coaches can be skillful at that. In fact, they could perhaps be even more skillful because they're dealing with more challenging situations often. So what 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 did that questioning look like? Because I think that's, oh, that's something that a lot of coaches it, would come back to to me from from when I've done coaching. You keep talking it, about questioning, but what type of Chris, questioning? Chris, it? it would be it would be like what did we notice? What did you notice when we do that? Where did you see space? What other options did we have available? Who else did you notice? You know, it was those sorts of. So we, Chris, I guess he was using questions to raise awareness. Yeah, exactly. I remember just referring back to when you were on um, the Top Performance Podcast. You spoke there about how you know with your questioning it needs to be how you can get that player or participant to delve into their own mind and actually understand yeah. what it is yeah. that they're doing. I think as coaches, we we sometimes tend to ask the the safe questions the what yeah. happened here the how can we do this better or such like that when actually if you're with a group of players for so long they probably get programmed to the answers that you expect therefore yeah. you, they're not actually giving you what they're thinking they're giving you the answer that they think that you want therefore if we can ask more questions like describe to me Beautiful. Like that, then you get yeah. to think more and that thinking then actually gives you an understanding of what they actually saw because at the end of the day, they've made a decision based on what they saw, which is completely different to the view that you've got wherever you happen to be stood. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. Perspective. You know, there's the old classic of perspective of the lens, you know, the lens of perspective. Where was I? What did I see? Totally different view. And and I need to find that out because what I saw might not actually be relevant as a coach. And that comes back to that kind of power dynamic, doesn't it? The uh, This was a discussion we're having the other day. And Harrison, you even your some of your young guys you're coaching at the moment, they'll be incredibly intelligent, 
incredibly aware and have contributions. But what happens, we live, you know, particularly in the Western world, the, you know, the way we've been brought up, we live in this power dynamic where the hierarchy know the answers and we're immediately subservient. I do it. The moment I'm in, the, in a situation with a CEO or someone, I'm probably a bit quieter than I normally would. Why is that? Because it's the power dynamic. So we've got these intelligent athletes come along, but the coach, oh, the coach is the coach, so I'll just keep quiet. Wayne Smith was great at trying to draw the stuff out to say, hey, we're, we're working together here, um, and you guys are exceedingly, you know, the wisdom lies in the room. <laughs> you know, you think about uh, kids, you need your iPhone fixed, who do you go to? You go to the 18, 15, 16, 17-year-old, don't you? <laughs> what other wisdom have they got? <laughs> they might see things in the game that we've never seen, yeah. And and then, of course, the power dynamic flips around. When they're performing, the focus is all on them, and we put the responsibility on them to make decisions that we don't allow them to make when we're coaching them because we're in charge. That goes all about all about about to trust and actually getting them on that shared. I think Chris yeah. referred to it as the as the, the shared energy bus. Shared right. energy bus, beautiful. Yeah, and they, you know, it's, it's, it's stolen from John Garden's energy bus. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, big magpie, mate. Flog everything. <laughs> well, I've been on Chris's energy bus, and I've, I've unfortunately I've had to check out a little bit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, it goes back to that that, that that trust and actually, you know, can these players give me? Do they do they trust in me that they can give me an honest answer that I won't that I won't put them down if 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 our vision if we if we're not if we're not aligned with our vision? Um, yeah, so, so so how do you get people? How would you get? How would you get? Or how have you seen people get people to join the energy bus? Not maybe not Chris's, but uh. well, uh, well, I'll, I'll take the concept of the energy bus and go down the line of trust that you just mentioned there, Harrison. And um, had a I, I, I had a situation when I was working in New Zealand about uh, New Zealand cricket about three years ago. So uh, when I left the Crusaders, I went back into international sport. Went back to New Zealand cricket. Well, I went into New Zealand cricket. Uh, I'd had the good fortune to work with both Mike Hesson and Gary Stead when they were provincial coaches and Shane Bond. Um, so I'd had a lot of interaction, but not as a part of the New Zealand cricket system. Interestingly, I go into New Zealand cricket. They had no high performance development process at all, which is quite remarkable. So when I started at the end of 2015, New Zealand cricket did not have a high performance uh, coach strategic plan. Uh, they had no, uh, so I had to. I started with a clean sheet, really, which was awesome. But I had relationships with people who were were, were major, and um, um, and uh, one of the things I had to do was get round the province provinces. So we've only got five provinces. <laughs> How many counties are there in England? <laughs> many. <laughs> yeah. Doing some work in one province, and it was pretty apparent that there was a low level of trust between the coach of that team and New Zealand cricket at the high performance unit, us, me. Not me personally, but, you know, what we were trying to do. Um, so I went back to my colleagues and I said, mate, w w you know, we've we got some work to do. Our trust is low here. And how can you have a, a high – how can we help him produce black caps because we ain't got that many players – because we need these coaches to produce black caps because our, our, our succession planning and our player base is so small. So we actually, uh, if you come across Frances Friel, she was, you know how the Americans often do, a professor will also be involved in a major business. So she was the chief operating officer for Uber. Um, she came in because they were when they first started off, it was all good and then they went started to tank and she went in and it was a culture issue. And she is a professor um, and she, the work area she works in is high level trust and she's got a great TED talk. So if you, you look up TED talk trust or whatever, it pops up and, and she had sort of three dimensions, which tie into what I've already talked about and, and it was stuff I did. She said to develop high level trust, you need to be authentic. Okay. So I'm seeing authentic Chris and Harrison tonight. I've got a feel for you guys. I'll probably be, I think we'd go all right having a, a pint at the pub. <laughs> I've got that straight away. <laughs> um, but because we're seeing the real person. Bearing in mind, when we coach, it is a performance because that's the coach's performance space, but it's got to be the real person who's coaching, not something that's artificial. 
she also said then we have to go in, and this is the awareness of self, self awareness of others piece, go in with huge empathy. So, okay, what's going on in Harrison's day today? Chris, you've had to get up early. You get there, the office is closed. Shit's already gone on in your day. I need to understand what, what has happened to you. You know, I, I need to be aware of that. Regardless of what's gone on my day, what's gone on your day? I was all so before that 7am. <laughs> uh, I feel for you, mate. I I, I wake up at I, I wake up at five every morning, just ding like that, you know. Anyway, um, we're coming into summer, so I'm or spring, so I'm okay about that. So so we've got authenticity, authenticity, empathy, which is awareness of self, awareness of the people who are in front of me. I'm going into the situation. I can't go in here hot because it's all really highly emotional and these people are dealing with some stuff. So I've got to put my agenda to the side here. But how many times do you see people come firing in? No empathy. <laughs> um, and the last bit is, uh, and, uh, and I like it, it ties in again. You know, I'm not going to wave crystals in front of you guys and try and mesmerise you. It's, it's about rigour of logic. So we must go in well prepared. We must be strong in our conviction that this stuff is well-supported, literature, whatever. Um, and, and that way, you know, in that triangle of authenticity, I go in with empathy and I go in well-prepared and I have a rigour of logic. People will, you know, that's that's kind of her trust triangle. And that, that spoke to me because all those three areas are the way I kind of conduct myself. And you can sit down and think about so, you know, tomorrow you got coaching tomorrow, Harrison, or today or whatever. You can say, okay, what's Harrison looking like today? Am I ready to go? Am I me? Am I my real self and identity? Yep. Will I make an attempt to connect with my players and understand their day? Yep. And am I well prepared? Am I organized? Now, I mean, rigor of logic could be I've actually got a practice plan today and I know what we're going to do. Yep. I'd say you present with that. The players will go, sure, here's a coach who's organized. Hmm. He's engaged and he's real. Yeah, I think I could trust him. Again, ori- not original. <laughs> but, but when I heard that, it spoke to elements in my life of the last 20 years of stuff I've inherently done. Again, Chris, I think models can, can often help explain behavior we've already been exhibiting over the years and go, you know, it's a confirmation thing. Well, not yeah. confirmation bias, well, but just confirmation. The- <laughs> it's one of the things I was also going to ask you about, actually, was you, you spoke, again, when I listened to that uh, Top Forms podcast about intellectual, intellectual humility versus intellectual arrogance. And I'll ask you, that's, that's another reason sort of linked to sort of why me and Harrison set up this, was actually how can we bring these ideas of theory with a more practical view that people could, could utilise and use? Because there isn't, um, you know, everything needs to still be uh, accessible. It needs to be able to digest. But people see sort of the academic side, I think it's going to be over complex and not relevant to them. Well, actually, some of it is pretty straightforward. If you read between the lines, you can apply it quite well to your own environment. And that was just yeah. a really interesting point that when you've got this knowledge, you can't just use it as a, this This is what I need, this is what I need to do. It's, well, how does it work for you? Yeah, so well, uh, look, you've, you've, there's a whole lot of things you've raised there. I think people get knowledge and they use it as power. So Harrison, I know more shit than you, therefore I've got a power dynamic over you. You know, that's one way people use it. And, and of course, that's that's your sociopaths, unfortunately. <laughs> we don't want them anywhere near coaching. But that, that happens. And, and you know, they're the people we've got to be really careful of because they can do damage. So, you know, what's that learning culture look like? You know, I use the analogy. I've actually got a pink balloon lying around here somewhere. You know, it's the old balloon. It's empty on the inside and the outside. So surface area and exact, what's inside is equals the surface area. I put some knowledge into the balloon surface area increases so actually the surface area is bigger than the interior of the balloon which is what i know so the surface area is what i don't know so the moment i know some stuff the amount i don't know gets actually bigger because my awareness of what i don't know gets bigger you can get people down that line going shit actually yeah i wasn't aware of that or i didn't know that (laughs) then you then you're in that conversation as opposed to chris you must do this Harrison, you must do this. Yeah, really? <laughs> Look, it's a challenge. We're humans. Um, people have mental models that are entrenched. Uh, the skill of the coach is to ask questions, to 
get those mental models to emerge. You know, people like a Smithy, uh, you know, I've done a lot of Gary Stead, um, uh, you know, how, you know, Steady, I'd had a conversation with him, you know, how do you coach Kane Williamson? The last thing you need to do to Kane Williamson is tell him something. You've got to go down. How did that feel? You know, what were you working on today and how did that feel? And he said, oh, I was, I was just, you know, because Kane notorious for playing the ball late. He says, I was just trying to constantly work the ball there. Oh, how was that going? Watch Steady in that relationship. Wow. Just, it's really, really fundamental, simple stuff, but it's not easy. Like you um, say, that player's got that power of knowledge as well. Players got the power of knowledge, but you also know that, you know, this goes back to the implicit learning stuff, you know, Rich Master's work. If we bring too much cognitive awareness, do we actually shut down the very thing that the athletes are good at? You know, <laughs> reinvestment. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, uh, there's a prime example of I was, um, I was, I was reading about uh, Dean and Asher Smith, a sprinter over here. Yes. Um, she, she went to the 2019 um, World Championships. And in the semi finals, she was absolutely awful out of the blocks and she had to work really hard to catch up to, to qualify for the final. So the first thing she did, she, she went and spoke to her coach and said, oh, I need to go and do some block work. And he said, No, no, no. We're just going to. No, 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 no. We're going to go and do our normal warm up. Because he knew that she knew that she she knew what she needed to do in yeah. the final. And she went out and aced the final and came away with a gold medal. You know, so it's. Yeah, it's it's that understanding the athlete, and actually, if we like you said, if we if we're honest and we show them the silver fern at the start of the journey, then they're gonna they're gonna trust us as coaches that we know where they we can get them to that end. And for her, yeah. it, was, it was a gold medal at the at the world championships. Yeah. So that was like that's a beautiful piece of coaching to say no. Actually, we'll do less, not more. Yeah, and it's, yeah. And it's been it goes back to right back to the start where you were saying it's that being self aware. It's about right. I'm a, I've, as a coach, I've analysed the situation. What's going to work best for both myself and the athlete or athletes that I've got in front of me now? Yeah. Um, and it's being honest with both ourselves first before we can be honest with with the athlete. With the athlete. Do you reckon? Do you guys see? Uh, here's a question for you. Like, you know, one of the things is we're moving down. I still believe that coaches should lead programs. You know, you've got to have. <laughs> I know it might sound a bit disrespectful, but. You can't have the lunatics running the asylum. <laughs> and, you know, athletes are special. At a high performance level, that is life on the knife edge. They have some slightly different personality characteristics. That's why they're high performance athletes. But we still need someone leading that. But if we can get to this place of what we call, you know, co-construction, then, you, which is kind of what you're talking about, Harrison, is let's involve the athlete in the process, not... Um, not have them where we're a coach and I will do something to you, Chris, because I'm the coach, so I will do something to you. You know, I'll do something to the person rather than work with the person. And I know we've, you know, as I say, we've had some tragedy here, but we've also got some real shifts with a whole lot of sports. I mean, you look at Gordon Walker, the way, and, and Gordy's, I know Gordy well, and um, the way he works with Lisa Carrington. That's that's a co-construction. Yeah. That's not a typical athlete-coach relationship. It's a co-construction born over years, admittedly, and success. Um, but to see the way they work, it's 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 a different dynamic. Yeah. Well, where, where I think coaches are still important now in the high performance level, and you talk about the high performance athletes have got a different mindset. So it's for where the coach fits in there is that a high performance athlete will will spend all every day. If, for a sprint, for example, just sprint, sprint, sprint until they feel like they've got it right. When actually, it's the coach's job to put, you know, to put in a different lens, to, to, to yep. try and frame it differently, to almost protect the athlete from potentially injuries or or overworking to something in which that, you know it's more of a negative than it is a positive. So I love I love your language there, Harrison. You did right that it provides another lens, another frame. Another perspective, yeah, absolutely, and and maybe sometimes that time to say, hey, I think stop, we've done enough, <laughs> which is yeah. kind of the opposite. The old days, oh, we didn't get it right, so we'll go and do some more. <laughs> the old thousand yeah. thousand hour approach, we're going to stay on the pitch until it's done. Well, Jesus, didn't you know? Didn't that work, didn't that piece of work get you know badly? badly represented you know all of a sudden we'll take chess players and musicians and we'll say that every athlete now has to do 10,000 hours of practice you know <laughs> bonkers bonkers 
Yeah. <laughs> I'm not saying I don't disagree with, yeah. <laughs> you know, practice. <laughs> but, yeah, I think, again, it's the don't fall in love with your model. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's spot on. It's spot on. And then just one question I wanted to ask is, with the – the world and the culture and, and the way that we see individuals and people nowadays is, is, is ever changing. And we try and celebrate, you know, individuality and, and, you know, the differences in, in individual people. Has you got examples of how we, how we can still celebrate that individuality in a team environment, but then also get them working as a, as a cohesive unit at the same time. Cause I think that's where a lot of grassroots coaches, especially are struggling. I, I know that I've struggled with it in, in my coaching journey and I've seen other people with it uh, struggle with it as well. Have you got any kind of advice or? Yeah. Well, it's funny. It goes, if you're particularly in a team sport, so let's use the context of a team sport where you've got those individuals, those 60 second conversations allow you to be then as a coach to, to begin to understand. So let's use a rugby team because, you know, like shit, I was a rugby coach and this is the space we've worked in. So one of the things, you know, is, is understanding the elements of, of the different cultural backgrounds. So the the Pacifica, whether it's Samoan or Tongan, because they're actually all, you know, everyone goes, oh, it's a Polynesian culture, but they all have different nuances. So, you know, we do, you know, you'll see, yeah, the All Blacks have the haka, but we do some Samoan and Tongan stuff. I've coached teams where we get in the circle and we go, mili, 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 and we, you know, and, and that was, and that's in New Zealand. So how do you, you know, not, you know, England, Great Britain is now a culturally diverse country. If I was a coach, if I was a cricket coach or a rugby coach, I'd be looking at um, going, okay, what's the cultural diversity I've got in front of me? How can I utilise that to enhance the overall culture so that people, again, grow internal awareness? Because all those players of those different cultures turn up. The one thing that binds them is they're all rugby players, yeah? But they're just not rugby players, as you said before, Harrison. They're, they're people, and they have these other lives. And then, and this is this is where coaching is, I think, exciting. But it takes energy. You know, this is where coaches have to work hard. It takes energy for them to organise and bring that group together. And I guess sometimes do we are coaches aware that when you get, I've done some work with a with a, a super team this year. And one of the things was the coaches probably had to make a jump that was a little bit big for them, and they just weren't aware of the workload. Again, they were probably thrust into stuff. And and I think um, even a coach at a young young age group, hey, it's actually not about what you do on the training field. Your energy's probably got to go here. What's the diversity you got in front of you? Who are they? And how do I utilise that? So. That's a path we've always gone. I've always gone down with any of the teams we work with. Yeah, was bringing that in, not me saying this will be your culture, these will be your values. Getting them to, you know, bring it forth. Yeah, I know. Is that sort of answer your question? <laughs> yeah, no, and yeah, it's it's a very complex thing, and it's probably something that you know coaches will all have their own different different stances and, and, and imprint that very differently. But no, it was definitely yeah. fascinating to yeah to hear what you've got to, to say, on, say on that. Yeah. Cool. And I think we've brought it full 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 circle there really. It just it comes down to understanding your players, understanding yourself and then being able to bring both of them together to maximize the environment that you can create. I think there'll be a, a lot of coaches that I think could take a lot away from, from this chat, Richard. And Chris, look, can I just add to that, the joy of doing that um, and actually saying, hey, yeah, it would be nice if we won the competition. But, you know, most teams, yeah, just about every team, the joy for me has been doing the work. We use the term mahi here in New Zealand. Mahi is Maori word for work. So if you do the mahi around that stuff, that's actually the joy of coaching. And then you sit back. Robbie Dean said to me, I remember quite, Robbie said, yeah, he said, Saturday, super game or, or Friday night or whatever. He says, I'm whistling when I'm walking down the tunnel because my work's done. And that's, that's the, you know, that's the pleasure, the work you do during the week. Even if you're a volunteer coach, I, I reckon that's the pleasure. And then you sit back and you watch it unfold. And uh, that's the joy. Yeah, and, and we can't ever lose sight of that joy 
of what we do, making a difference to people. Yeah. And I think that's the bit that gets lost within coaching at that, that grassroots community level as well, is they just forget that, you know, it is about people. It is about the, the inspiring the people that are in front of you, bringing them on the journey, take, well, taking them on a journey, because if you do it in the right way, you might not necessarily know where that journey is going to go. Um, the, the sport is, is sort of how we bring them people together. And, and like I said, I think definitely something I've sort of realized is, is that energy, it's the energy that you bring to that, that's going to yeah. maximize yeah. the type of environment that you create with your people. Because if you've got them relationships, actually the, the, the sports side should come that a little bit easier because you're not yep. pointing out fighters. You, everyone's engaged with you. That's right. Yep. Cool. Richard, thank you very much Great. for giving up your time today. It's been fascinating speaking to you. I could have, could have gone for probably another hour around all this and gone down all sorts of different rabbit holes. Um, <laughs> it's, it's been it's been fascinating. I've, I've really enjoyed it. Um, oh, guys, thank you. Look, um, end of a day of lockdown, so I've been at home all day. I was, I was, <laughs> when we finally got the dates and time sorted, <laughs> um, I, I was really looking forward to it tonight because, yeah, it's, it's one of those days where – you know, you don't have a lot of contact with people. So I was thinking, oh, this will be quite cool to catch up with these two guys and see see how things go. So thank you for the no, opportunity. Yeah. Well, we know all about lockdown. We've been through enough. Uh, I know you guys have done, you know, we've been lucky. We're, our lives have been pretty much normal here, really, um, to tell you the truth. Yeah. May not be the same now with Delta loose, but we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Bacon got you through it, didn't Harrison? Yes, yeah, a bit. Going to baking and pork. <laughs> Baking and podcasting. Baking and podcasting. Yeah. Baking and podcasting. I love craft beer and red wine, so that's always a danger you see at my end. <laughs> and if you ever find yourself over here, we can always pop down to the pub. <laughs> oh, I, I enjoyed. I've been in England a few times, and yeah, I've, I've never not had a good time, Harrison. <laughs> so yeah, thanks again, Richard. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, guys. Yep. Take care. Go well, everyone. So Harrison, episode three, Richard Smith, people. Uh, I think I could have, again, spoke to Richard for uh, for hours after that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, he's um, a cracking bloke with lots of great ideas. And, you know, it's just, once again, it was just great hearing about the environments that he's that he's been in, that he's helped set up and um, and he's been part of and the experiences that he's he's witnessed himself. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, that's one of the key things. He's he's coached through um, with New Zealand cricket in their environment. He's been involved in the Crusaders. Um, he's worked for that high performance sport in New Zealand. He's got a, a, a backlog of environments that he's been working in, and that that focus on people seemed right in the core of everything that he'd done. Sort of in that process. Um, I mean, just to sort of remind the listeners of what we spoke about with, with Sergio, first of all, around that that people was around that developing a belief in me, you and us, but then also how you have that athlete and staff management. And I think Richard really sort of brought that to life from them practical environments that he'd been in. Yes, oh, he, he really did, and like, you know, and there's oh, there's 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 so many things that that you know, that have stuck with me, um, and have got really got really got me thinking. Um, and actually trying. I remember um, the first one was he was talking about how you know how you how you coaching how you coaching people how you you know how you coaching not you're not coaching rugby players you're coaching people and that you know ten minutes before a session you can go and have ten minute one ten minute ten one minutes tongue twister there uh, ten one minute conversations with ten different players um, and just ask them about their day. Do not even bring up bring up the sport. Don't bring up the sport they're about to play. Um, just have a conversation with them one minute. And that was, I went and tried it. And how did yeah. you find it? Oh, it was brilliant. It was, you actually, um, like, you know, like, I said in, like I said in the episode, it's, you know, you find out more things about the players that, you, that you're coaching. You know, and I'm talking, yeah, yes, I'm working with 16 to 18 year olds. And, you know, getting getting one word out of some of them is, is difficult enough. But, uh, you know, you, you see them in a whole different light. You know, you see them get excited about things that, that, that they enjoy doing. And not only does that, you know, you have more interest in them. You know, they feel like that you respect and you want to, you, you want to listen. You're there to listen to them. You know, we're here to build relationships, and I think that's what really kind of, you know, can separate separate coaches. There's lots of coaches out there that can that can have great technical understanding and tactical understanding of the sport, but can you coach it to to other human beings? Uh, well, I mean, we've we've spoke a few times post that that interview with with Richard and. 
the, the key analogy that stood out for both of us was that, you know, do you treat your athletes like mushrooms and keep them in the dark and feed them bullshit? Or do you let them be in the sunshine and grow like a, a silver fern and, and sort of be the best that they possibly can be? And I mean, that's, that's, that is, it, it comes down to how you treat the people around you. If you act like an arsehole, you're not going to get the results that you think in your head you should be getting just because you're acting like an arsehole. And, and I think, you know, recently there's been big things in the news around Ronaldo going back to Manchester United and the relationship that he had with Sir Alex Ferguson and that sort of has helped influence um, that move back to, to Manchester. And I, and I think I just I remembered reading that he his dad was ill in London or Portugal, maybe Portugal, and he went to see Sir Alex about having a... a uh, miss, a, miss a day miss two days and um, Sir Alex said to him take, take as long as you need whether it's one day two days a week he was prepared to lose his player in you know when they were running for championships then because he knew the value of well actually I, I can't be a dick here his dad's ill he needs to go and spend time with his family and he had that connection with his players to be able to do it and that is, that is a manager who is renowned for things like the hair dry treatment he still had that relationship with each one of his players that he would allow, you know, to allow things like that to happen. And, and even with uh, David Beckham, for example, you know, they ended where he kicked a boot at his head and, you know, the, the relationship might not have ended on the best time, but he still calls him the boss. He still has that high respect for him because of everything else that he did with it. And I think that mirrors sort of similar to what we touched on with Sergio about how you can have them high standards, but, you know, you still got to be a people person first, that, that driven benevolence. But Yeah, and but I, just, I also think it's... It's got about you know different challenge points for different for different people as well, and there's a time and a place for it. You know when we want to you know, we want to create competitive environments because sport is competitive. You know, but that like you said, that doesn't mean you have to be a, you don't doesn't mean you have to be an arsehole. You know, there, can't, there might be a time in which you might be an arsehole to you know to your players to you know to see to see a reaction to test and, and to prod and make them feel uncomfortable but you've got to remember that there's you know there's a safety net there that you are still managing managing human beings you are managing people and like you know you talk about you know and he's similar and richard mentions mentions it quite well in terms of those challenge points with um when it's about wayne smith and he was watching him lead, lead the back session when actually his language and the way he spoke to the players and how he how he's able to get points across really really quickly was because he had that understanding of the players. The players trusted uh, trusted trusted Wayne Smith that he he would get them as a coach to where they need to be, um, and Wayne Smith trusted them. So you know he's a, he he knew what he could say and how he could say it to them in order for them to get immediate immediate success at that time. Definitely. Um, again, and it comes down to he referenced that that TED talk by um, Francis Ferrell for. For, uh, on trust and you know I, I went back and watched that and, and I know you did too and the, the key three things on that were around that authenticity logic and empathy so you know authenticity was that people know that they're interacting with the real you it's not a false face you can get that through having them one minute conversations with all their players that they get to know you as well as you knowing them the logic is you know that you they have faith in your judgement you know your sport you know what you're doing and that you have empathy and actually care about them. And if you get all three of them levels and you gain that trust, then, you know, people will, you know, get on the bus, to quote the, the, the analogy that we, we used a few times, even with the episode of Richard. So, you know, I think that, that for me has to be the key message that everyone should be taking away from this, is how do I ensure that when I'm with my players that I'm being as authentic as possible? that I do understand my spot and that reverts back to what we spoke about in season one and that they trust my judgment in why I'm doing what I'm doing and when I'm doing it. And they, you can have that empathy with them that, you know, if they're having a bad day, you're aware of it because you're speaking to them and engaging with them on a, a level playing field, I suppose. There's no level of hierarchy. You're just treating them like people. Yeah. And that's how you get people to move in that direction. Yeah, I know that, I know that I've, 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 I've mentioned it and used it before about... Um, you know, Mauricio Pochettino at Tottenham, that he'd go in and shake every player's hand before a session. And if he felt the energy was not, was a little bit low or someone was having a bit of a bad day or the squad was having a bit of a, uh, oh, oh, he'd flip the whole session, um, you know, because he has, because he, you know, because he knows his players. He knows, you know, he knows what a bad day looks for them, looks like for them. He knows what, what will work to get their energy 
energy to perk up. Um, you know, and that's and that you know and that takes time. And it goes it, it it goes back to what we discussed right at the start of season season one. You've got to understand who you're coaching first, and that isn't that isn't. I think people get lost with that a little bit. With right, I've moved into a new environment. I've done all these icebreakers. I understand them, but it's an ongoing process. You know, as 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 we discussed with Richard, it's not black or white. It's grey. It's foggy, and we've got to navigate our way through that fog. And as human, the human being, a human being, human mind is is very complex and is ever changing. So, you know, what are we going to do to evolve with these players for long term success? Um, I reckon, you know, that you can be an arsehole, you can be an arsehole with a coach and you might get short term success. But in terms of we're looking at, you know, longevity here, you've got to, yeah, you've got to have that, you've got to have that trust in the players and the players got that trust in you. Definitely. Definitely. Another, another great episode. I think not, again, not to blow our own trumpet, but I think, I think, I think I, I was fascinated. I could have spoke to Richard for, for ages. And we've had some email conversations with him afterwards and he, he is, he's top block. Uh, definitely someone I'll be keeping in contact with. Um, so we have two week, two week break. We're back here with, uh, we're on environment next week. We have professor John Lyle, uh, on coming to, uh, chat with us about that. Uh, it's another great, uh, great interview, great discussion. Um, Charlie's got all our details at the end. Make sure you reach out and let us know what you think. And we'll see you next time. Cheers for listening. Don't forget to join in the discussion at Big Breakdown HQ on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram.